the marks of time. News of Life, the magazine which tells the news of the world and the ways of its people in words and pictures. Sixteen million American men, women, and children, nine readers per copy, stirring to the strangely compelling desire to see, to know, to be informed, are now reading life each week. And as life goes into its second year, U.S. business is discovering what the U.S. reading public has already discovered. The life force, the impact of pictures which attract and inform and impel. Last fall, the General Foods Corporation decided to place the advertising of one of its products, Baker's Chocolate and Cocoa, in a special full-color campaign in life. Immediately, General Foods began to feel the life force in advertising. Wholesalers and big retailers tell the story. From Gristidi Brothers, with 180 stores in and near New York. The Baker campaign in life is directly responsible for the major portion of our great recent sales increase of Baker's chocolate and cocoa. From the Imperial Wholesale Grocery Company in San Francisco. Baker's product sales up 100%. Life is gigantic medium for advertising grocers' products. From Kroger Grocery and Baking Company, Cleveland. Customers talk about seeing the Baker chocolate advertising in life, then buy. It's meant a big sales increase. Wood and Allen Market Company, Atlanta. Now selling 100 cans of Baker's Cocoa to one of any other brands. City Market, Duluth. Baker's chocolate sales tripled since advertising in life started. Like many another advertiser who discovered the power of the life force in 1937, Baker's Chocolate is again this year making life the backbone of its advertising campaign. Tonight, Life, the weekly magazine of pictures, joins Time, the weekly news magazine, in presenting by radio the reenactment of memorable scenes from the news of the week from the March of Time. The U.S. Political Front. The farmer and the city worker in this country should get together and find out what's keeping them apart. A ham sandwich costs a city worker as much as a farmer gets for a whole pig. And you ought to see one of those ham sandwiches. One-tenth ham, one-tenth whole wheat, and eight-tenths free air. So proclaims New York's Republican Mayor Fiorello H. LaGuardia. This week, stumping the U.S. grassroots in a first cautious appearance on the stage of national politics. And this week, with a weather eye on 1940, Midwestern news hawks rushed to interview the rotund little mayor of the world's largest city. And what's the significance of this western tour of yours, Mayor LaGuardia? I'm interested in the farm problem. Who isn't? Well, aren't you interested in the presidency in 1940? Well, of course, but I don't see what that's got to do with me. Well, what about President Roosevelt's recent statement that the country should draft a younger man for 1940? That could refer to you, couldn't it? Don't be silly. Nobody was ever drafted for a political office. You ought to know better than that. But you would take the job. My boy, let me tell you something. It's a bad thing for a man holding one office to think about obtaining another office. It impairs his usefulness. It's like necking in a closed car on a moonlight night after a good dinner and champagne. Don't start it. So this week, New York's quick-witted little mayor fences away attempts to bracket him as a 1940 presidential aspirant. But this week, surveying the list of potent New Deal possibilities for 1940, joining the ranks with Pennsylvania's Governor George Howard Earl and Michigan's Governor Frank Murphy, is a man nominally a Republican, philosophically a New Deal Democrat. 
Only politician in U.S. history to be elected to office with the almost unanimous support of liberal and Tory Republicans, New Deal and Orthodox Democrats, Communists and Trotskyites, Socialists and Laborites, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews. Only politician anywhere whose name means Little Flower. 1938, marches on. <laughs> Arctic Ocean. This week, pushing its way through the piled-up ice flows of the Arctic Sea north of Spitsbergen, the Soviet Union's icebreaker, Mamanyets, is bound north to pick up a party of four Soviet scientists left at the North Pole eight months ago to make scientific observations. In the radio room of the Mamanyets, one day this week, Soviet Polar Expedition. Icebreaker Mamanyets calling Soviet Polar Expedition. Come in. This is Papagin, Polar Expedition. Go ahead. Severe weather disturbance reported off the coast of Greenland. Be prepared for heavy seas and winds of gale force within 24 hours. Go ahead. Thank you, comrade. We will make all necessary preparations. How near are you to us now? We are about 70 miles away. Should break through to you in a week or ten days. Keep in touch with us. A few nights later in the Duralyaman hut, where the little band is encamped on the ice for the long Arctic winter. Come on, wake up. Uh, uh, what is it? What do you want? The ice. You have done? Near. Too near. Come on. It was over this way, I think. Hard to see anything. Look, we've broken off from the ice field. They are drifting away. Breaking up. Ice is breaking up all around us. One hour later in the radio room of the icebreaker Mamanyets. Polar expedition calling Mormanyets. Papanin calling Mormanyets. Come in. This is the Mormanyets. Go ahead, Papanin. The ice has broken up. We are drifting south on an ice floe, about a hundred yards long. May break up at any time. Can you get to us? Go ahead. No, comrade. Storm has driven us way off our course. We are jammed in the ice. It will be days before we can get to you. Call Moscow. Give them your position. Perhaps they can send planes. Call Moscow. Tonight, somewhere in the Arctic Ocean, between Greenland and the coast of Spitsbergen, Four Soviet scientists are adrift on a dwindling ice cake, the size of three tennis courts. Cut off from the world, their position growing hourly more dangerous as they float southward toward the warm waters of the Gulf Stream. Their nearest hope of rescue, the Arctic ship Mermanyets, still icebound over 100 miles away. Time marches on. <laughs> Brooklyn, New York. 
This week on the stage of Brooklyn's Werber Theatre at Flatbush Avenue Extension and Fulton Street. You've come to the very sinkhole of creation, Langford. Oh, I say, aren't you being just a bit dramatic? Backstage, attired in grease paint, feathers, and three beads for the role of white cargo's sultry tundaleo, actress Annette Margulies stands in the wings. Oh, look at coming up, Miss Margulies. Oh, Thanks. Any spots in my makeup, Bella? Turn around, Annette. No, you look just fine. That's good. Oh, wait a minute, Miss Margulies. One of those beads is loose. You better let me sew it on. Well, all right, but hurry. I got needle and thread right here. It won't take a minute. All right, hurry now. Okay. Hold the fort, Bella. Hey, Bella. Hey. What were you doing then? What do you mean? I seen you. Sewing that beat on Margulies costume. Well, so what? So you ain't a member of the Costumers Union, that's what. Nobody but union men's supposed to fix those costumes. I didn't fix any costume. I sewed on one bead. Yeah? Well, one bead or a million. It's all the same to local 2133 an actress gets a girl to sew on one bead, and I get pickets in front of my theater. It's the principle, Mr. Weinstock. Start with one bead, where wouldn't the violations end? But if the costumers won't come back to work, how can I get her a new costume? Well, that's your problem, Mr. Weinstock. Our business is to negotiate. On before Werber's Theater. And hour after hour in the office of theater manager Weinstock. The 72nd hour of negotiations. Ah, it's no use. It's no use talking anymore. Where are we? Right where we started. We can wait, Mr. Weinstock. Come in. Oh, uh, hello, Miss Margulies. Um, these are the gentlemen from the union. So I hear. And this is the bead they're talking about. This one right here, see? Oh, that one, huh? Yes. And this thing has been going on long enough. So I brought along a pair of scissors. Now, there's your bead. Now what? Well, uh, what do you gentlemen say? Uh, does that make things any different? Well, I guess that fixes it. Strikes off. <laughs> Successful arbitrator of the strike of the week is actress Annette Margulies, playing Tom DeLeo to packed Brooklyn houses at week's end with a costume ornamented by two beads instead of three. Both approved by Theatrical Costumers Union Local 21313. 1938, march us on. Off the southeast coast of Spain one morning this week, one day out of Gibraltar, Bound for the loyalist naval base of Cartagena with a cargo of coal, plows the 887-ton British freighter Endymion. There's a few moments before 7.40 o'clock. As in the captain's cabin off the bridge, the ship's master, Verano, speaks to his wife. 
We'll be in port in a couple of hours, Laura. I might as well get a few things ready. Come in. Captain, look out, thought he said it to submarine or stop. Uh, come on, Laura. Can you make out her nationality, Mr. Thomas? No, sir. There she is, sir. Oh, yes. No marks to identify it. How close is it? Look, sir. White streak coming toward us. Torpedo. It's going to strike us a little forward, sir. All hands on deck. Go to the cabin for your life belt. Do as I tell you. George, have Sparks send an SOS. Crowd out the men below. We are ripped right open, sir. The board hold. Nothing we can do, sir. No, no, not a chance. We're settling fast. Man the lifeboat. Abandon ship. Abandon ship. Laura, where's my wife? Laura. Jump, Laura. Off the starboard side, the boilers have exploded. Jump! Daddy. Jump, I tell you! Try to keep clear of the ship. The men can't launch the boats. Jump! Next day in London and the British Foreign Office. Mr. Eaton, the Admiralty confirms the torpedoing and sinking of the Endymion. Any particulars? She sank in four minutes, sir. There are only four survivors. No other details. But through a call for the entire ambassador at once. Tell me it's urgent. And I shall wish to talk to the French embassy. From the Prime Minister, there is... In the British House of Commons, uprises First Lord of the Admiralty, Alfred Duff Cooper. Mr. Speaker, the Admiralty is now informed that of the 15 persons on board the Endymion, the only survivors were four members of the crew picked up by Spanish loyalist authorities. The Swedish non-intervention control officer and three Britons, the captain and his wife, and the second engineer, were among the eleven who perished. Isn't it usual to express regret at the loss of British lives? It is perhaps usual to express such regret. I'm sorry I omitted to do oh, so. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, again it has been charged. The submarine was Italian. Again the Italian government has not denied the time has come for a showdown with Mussolini. With the house, with the house, I condemn this attack by a pirate. However, if the Endymion's captain had been on the recommended course, there would... Where's the right honourable first lord of the Admiralty? Claim the Endymion's captain. Order! Order! Gentlemen, the destroyers Fortune, Fury, Fire Drake and Forrester are already in the vicinity of the attack. Four other destroyers are en route from Gibraltar with orders to sink any pirate submarine of any nationality on site without quarter. This week, as the Fader Endymion, first British vessel torpedoes in September's anti-piracy agreement, sinks with the loss of more British lives than in any of the previous 25 British ships attacked, Headed by the battleships Rodney and Nelson, the British home fleet speeds to join the 200 British, French and Italian warships concentrated in the Mediterranean. But at week's end, orders Rebel Generalissimo Francisco Franco... Against all ships carrying supplies to the Spanish loyalists, all submarines under my command will begin immediately unrestricted warfare. Time marches on. <laughs> Thank you.
fortnight ago in the office of the New York Journal American, in the midst of a hot campaign against New York State's Lunacy Commission, a series of exposés featuring criminal records, lost documents, and first-hand sleuthing, the city editor summons a reporter. Now, Alan, this story is going to be part of our special series. The complete lowdown on what goes on in Rockland County Insane Asylum. Okay. Any idea on how you're going to handle it? Sure. Why not go right up the asylum and register myself as a nut? You think you could do it? Why not? I'll get into that asylum and get the dope and be back here Monday. Two hours later, the admission bureau of Rockland County Hospital for the Insane. And then, Doctor, about a year ago, I lost my job. After that, things just seemed to go from bad to worse. You felt depressed? Yeah, depressed. Worse than that. Sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to... Going to what? Kill myself. I see. Will you take me in, Doctor? I'm afraid to be alone. I'm, I'm afraid of... I think we can, Mr. Carlin. Uh, just fill out this card. Name, address. Registered as a patient suffering from melancholia with suicidal tendencies is Newhawk Alan Bernard. Known during three days of observation by Rockland County doctors as Alan Carlin. Then, one morning ward round. Well, Alan, how are you feeling this morning? Well, Doctor, I've filled out a petition for release. A petition for release? Yeah. That's how you get out of here, isn't it? Well, Carlin, uh, you feel you're ready to leave us already, do you? Well, I, I guess I ought to tell you, Doctor. I'm a reporter up here on a special assignment. Oh, I see. Have you been a reporter long, Carlin? All my life, Ferdinand. Well, that's very interesting, schizophrenia. Mm. Now, wait a minute. I really am a reporter. Why, of course you are. Well, Miss Johnson... Hey, I'm not kidding. I'm a reporter from the journal. I think we'd better go up and talk to Dr. Brown. He's very interested in reporting. Now, wait a minute, Doctor. I tell you, I'm as sane as anybody. I've got to get back to the office. Why, we'll have you back in your office in no time. Now, hold still while I test your reflexes. Well, look, Doctor, just let me use the uh, telephone, will you? Uh, later, perhaps. But first, some exercise and a nice, warm bath. Now, just relax. Fly way back in the water. Oh, listen, Doc. Please, Doc, I... Uh, Carlin, we're only trying to help you. Now lie back. Doc, i got to get away. I've got to... Go. Go. Ten days later in the city room of the New York Journal American. Hello? City desk. This is Alan Bernard. Well, where have you been? Listen, I just broke away and I got the telephone. you got to come and get me out of here. You hear me? you got to come and get me out of here. Hello? Hello, Alan. Alan! Hey, operator. Operator, trace that call. Trace that call. Finally released is journal reporter Alan Bernard. For ten days, the unwilling guest of a New York institution for the insane. And at week's end, as Journal American Press is prepared to roll out the inside story of Rockland County Asylum, says Rockland County Psychiatrist-in-Chief, He may be a reporter, all right, but... I still say he's crazy. 1938, marches on.
This week, over an austere, stark white villa in a wooded section of Dorn in the Netherlands, is hoisted the proud banner of the House of Hohenzollern to mark the 79th birthday of the man who once ruled continental Europe's greatest empire. Let us turn time back to the year 1910. In the chapel at Windsor Castle, the body of Britain's King Edward VII lies in state. Installed in their new apartments are the new king, George V, his Queen Mary, the adolescent Prince of Wales, and the child Bertie, Duke of York, who one evening walks into the somber library of Windsor Castle, boldly approaches a house guest. Good evening, Cousin Wilhelm. Well, good evening, Cousin Bertie. I hope I'm not disturbing you, sir, but I thought since we're cousins, we should get acquainted. Mm. And since I am the Kaiser of Germany, and you may one day be the King of England, it is doubly imperative, isn't it? What book are you reading, sir? This is an old German book on military tactics. It was given to me by your great-grandmother, Queen Victoria. She was my grandmother, you know. I found it right there on the shelf. But I left it when I was about your age. Did you used to stay here in Windsor Castle? The happiest days of my childhood were spent in this house. I know every corner of it. Look. You see that armchair over there? Yes. Well, that's where I was sick once. When my grandmother fed me too much pudding. David was sick in the hall once, and Mother gave him a frightful scolding. <laughs> Bertie, whatever you're saying to Cousin Wilhelm. Uh, we were just discussing old times, me. When Windsor Castle was my home. George remembers. Don't you, Cousin? Indeed I do. I, I hope you'll always consider this place your home, Wilhelm. <laughs> One week later of May 1910, Wilhelm of Hohenzollern returns to Berlin, never to set eyes on his cousin George again, never to hear from his English cousins after August 1914. This week of 1938 in Dornhaus, his home in exile, an erect, white-bearded old gentleman with a shriveled left arm is seeing his last dinner guest to the door. Good night, Wilhelm. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Uh, Hermine... Elmine. Yes, Wilhelm. Are you all right? Yes, yes. Here, sit down. Here beside me for a moment, Elmine. Ah, uh, Wilhelm, I nearly forgot. Another telegram arrived during dinner. Here it is. Another? All the relatives I heard from. Fetch me my glasses, will you, my dear? Ah, thank you. Hmm, from England. England, Hermine. Congratulations in kinship and deep affection. Signed, Bertie, May, and Elizabeth. Wilhelm, from Windsor Castle. Mm. After all these years, 24 years, they never sent me any word while my cousin George was alive. George never could bring himself to write. Would have been 73 now. But I think even he would have let me hear from him now. I'm sure he would have, Wilhelm. Bertie. And now he's king. And May, 
You know, Hermine May and I were friends even before she was engaged to George. Yeah, well, Helen, you, you must come to bed now. It's so late. This week, for the first time in 24 years, Wilhelm of Hohenzollern is greeted on his birthday by his cousins George VI, Queen Elizabeth, and Dowager Queen Mary of Britain's royal house. This week, a bare 15 miles from the Dutch villa where an old monarch lives out his last days, the banner of another royal house is unfurled to mark a milestone in the stolid history of Orange Nassau, ruling house of the Netherlands. At precisely one minute after 10 a.m., out from Holland, Sosdick Palace, a dapper blue and orange uniformed equerry, flanked by two royal trumpeters, strides toward the palace gates where a crowd has been waiting since dawn. Here he comes! He's coming now! Stand back! Stand back! Stand back, Jeff! Let the Queen's hair up, too! It is with deep felt joy that we proclaim that today, January 31st, 1938, through the grace of God, is born to the house of Orange Nassau and the Wippet Biesterfeld, a princess, whereby the heart's desire of all the Netherlands people is realized. Long live the royal family. A girl. A princess, did he say? Yeah, a girl. For shame to speak so the heir to the throne. I say long live the royal Precisely one minute after 10 a.m., out from the garrisons at Arnheim, Breda, and Amersfoort, obsolete Dutch field pieces thunder a 51-gun salute. And at that very moment in Sumatra, Borneo, and Bali and the Celebes, Java, and Majora, and Guiana, and Curaçao, Dutch garrisons ring out a salute around the world for the new heir to the throne of the world's fourth largest colonial empire. At 20 minutes past 10, in the Royal Sustic Palace, Queen Wilhelmina of Holland enters her daughter's apartment. Juliana, my pet, I'm so happy. Did you see her, Mother? She's a beautiful child, my dear. Mother, may I be fixed up a little before Bernard comes in? Can I have my hairdresser? Of course you may. And can I have my eyebrows plucked right now? I'll call Irma to come now. Wait, Mother. Yes, Juliana? I know you and Bernard are disappointed it wasn't a boy. But, Mother, I'm going to have a dozen children. We'll get a boy sooner or later. This week, scanning the long roster of orange relatives, Hollanders speculate whose namesake their new princess will be. Whether cousins Mary of England, Maud of Norway... Or Victoria of Spain will be honored. Learn at week's end that proud father Bernhard of Lippe Biesterfeld has registered his daughter simply as Beatrix. Explains he. I don't know why we named her Beatrix, but Juliana and I were both thinking of names, and 
We thought of Beatrix, and uh, we both liked it. Time marches on. The pageant of the week's news. Memorable scenes from the news of the world you have followed tonight on the March of Time. It is this great news pageant of the world the magazine Life is unfolding every week before the eyes of its readers in pictures. People like life. They like life's news coverage of events at home and abroad. It's human interest stories. They like life's news of art and science. It's theater and motion picture reviews. Big businessmen and little businessmen like life. Wholesale and retail grocers know firsthand the power of life in helping to sell their products. And they like to read life. Along with 18 million other American men, women, and children, they have discovered the fascination of seeing and knowing, of following through life's pictures, the news of the week, and the ways of the world. The new issue of Life goes on sale tomorrow night. So to make sure of getting your copy, we suggest you ask your news dealer for Life tomorrow, Friday morning. Time marches on.